You're listening to Decoding Seafood, where we dive into the depths of one of the world's most beloved but misunderstood foods and the industry that drives its production, environmental impact, and cultural norms. Join us as we peel back the layers and speak to the players of the seafood industry, from chefs to scientists, influencers, and everyone in between. This is Decoding Seafood, brought to you by Moe. When it comes to the world of food, Chef George Duran is a powerhouse. As a chef, entertainer, and author, George is known for his Food Network show, Ham on the Street, as well as for hosting TLC's Ultimate Kickoff. As a guest, he's appeared on NBC's Today Show, CBS This Morning, The Wendy Williams Show, The Dr. Oz Show, The Nate Berker Show, and many others. Today, we're thrilled to have George join us. He decodes the cultural and culinary barriers that Americans face when it comes to harnessing the power of seafood in our diets and touches on how to make easy and delicious dishes, as he covers everything from selecting the right seafood to how to cook it. Welcome to the show, George. Thanks for having me on. This is a totally different interview than a lot of the people we've talked with because you are a public figure and you use, I don't know if it's cursed language, but the, the, the moniker of celebrity chef. You've been attached to that moniker before. I feel like you kind of dipped in your toes into that world. Is that a title you want to be known as or who is George Duran? Yeah, you know, I've learned in this career that you need a platform to really get your voice out. You need a really good mechanism to get your voice out. So there are certainly a lot of times there where I have to use the term celebrity chef. What is a celebrity chef at the end of the day? All right, you know, on television, food network, all these things create these celebrity chefs. There is no way on earth that my wife would ever imagine I would be a celebrity or am a celebrity or ever will be a celebrity for that matter. Like that humbles me and grounds me for sure. But at times you have to use the whole doctor, mister, your highness to get through the door. And once you do get through that door, you're able to use that as a magnification of your voice and be able to use that to do what you want to do. If it's entertain, great. If it's educate, even better, in my opinion. So that's why I have used that as a way to get through the door and now be able to kind of inspire people to do what I love to do, which is cook. I am just fascinated by your background and your story. It's not linear, and I think it speaks to why you're a great personality, but also a really interesting chef. Between growing up in Venezuela from Armenian parents, and then growing up and spending a lot of time in New York City, getting classically trained in, in Paris, if I'm correct. And so you have all these influences and I think that's really to your advantage. Do you, do you agree that that kind of multi-layered cultural experience has kind of formed how you see food? It's not just about food. It's about culture. It's about pretty much everything. When you have a more objective perspective on anything in life, it broadens your mind and you're able to empathize with others more. And I can easily come in as a Venezuelan and walk in and say, you're doing that wrong. Or as a French person and say, your cuisine sucks. And it's the complete opposite for me personally, because I have a multicultural point of view, because I've traveled, but lived other cultures and I can look at the American consumer or I can look at the American family and look at the American palate and have that perspective and say, I understand why Americans don't like fish. Mm-hmm. I understand why they only want white fish. And I understand why they, do want to, they don't want to see the head of the fish when they go to the market and they will never purchase fish that has bones in it. I understand that. I don't agree with it maybe, but I understand that. And with that understanding, with that perspective, I'm able to now perhaps inspire them 
to start accepting more of the fishier fish, or as I call it, ocean-flavored fish in their diet and and cook with it. And maybe that will expand their palate and inspire. I mean, that's kind of what I really want to do at the end of the day, is really just inspire and instigate new flavors in their palate. Can you put your finger on why American eaters don't want to see the head of a fish, why they don't want to have the bones in? This is a country that's been settled by a lot of Italian Americans. There's a lot of Mediterranean Americans. There's a lot of Asian Americans. Asian Americans. Yeah. And so what what happens when we come across that ocean? Well, it's multifaceted. You can first of all say that we're a very young culture to start with. If you're competing against the Europeans, thousands and thousands of years of culinary experience working from the land, that's already ingrained in their culture. People look at the French and they say, how are they so skinny when they can eat all those cheeses? Yeah, but in their culture is ingrained to cook bread from scratch twice a day. So when you go into the boulangerie, there is fresh bread constantly that has not been processed, has not been added salt or whatever they're doing so that it can actually not live outside of the bakery or the refrigerated aisle. So now we come to the United States and we've industrialized food. We're working in a capitalistic country and everybody needs quick, fast, and we know we live here to work. And it's the complete other way on every other culture, including the poorest cultures in the world. So we're a young country, we've industrialized food, and our palate has conformed to those aspects in life by achieving this like need to eat the processed, quick, fast food. It is cheaper for me to go to buy a frozen pie than to learn how to make dough from scratch and make an exquisite pizza from scratch. Americans would prefer to have pink, tasteless tomatoes all year long, then wait till summertime when the most amazing, sweet, gorgeous tomatoes are available for you. It's changing. It's not changing fast enough for me, but it's changing. But quite often I I leave restaurants in this country relatively angry. I sit Mm. down and I say, I just got ripped off for $45 on this dish that cost them pennies to make. I know that. The consumers don't know that. And the problem is that the American consumer is just not educated enough to demand quality food with quality ingredients because they're not educated. It's not in our culture. It's not in our veins. And it's, it's kind of sad. It's a little bit sad. I honestly really appreciate your passion here. It's something I'm equally passionate about. You hear the term foodie or food Mm -hmm. snob thrown around. And it's funny because I I don't know if that would just be a term that you see in in North America, because in Europe, that would just be someone who has a developed palate, right? Or just someone who's uh, European that's respecting a lot of food traditions. But then you come over here and, oh, you're a foodie, you're a food snob. Do you see yourself as being like a torchbearer, someone who's really passionate about advocating for a higher standard of just respectability within what we're putting on our plates and what we're paying for? Do you see yourself playing a role in in trying to change the tide here in the States with that? Man, if when you start putting labels like food snob, foodie, you know, connoisseur, you're now segregating the majority of the population. And it's something I absolutely do not want to ever do. Even using the word dumbing down the recipes. When you do watch celebrity chefs on TV making these extraordinary dishes, chances are nobody's going to recreate that at home. And that's because it's very intimidating for your average consumer to be able to go home and recreate it or want to make anything like that. Instead, it's just easier to pop in the frozen thing 
thing and let it do what it has to do. I personally, again, have that perspective that I, I understand I have an American wife who has that American palate and she just grounds me and makes me understand what it is about the American palate that doesn't translate to someone who is perhaps considered a foodie in this country. So the moment I stepped foot in, in France to go to culinary school, I genuinely thought, I know everything. What are these French people going to teach me? I'm going to culinary school in France and I'm like, ah, I know everything. I'm just going to get my certification and come back to the United States. First day of culinary school, I go in there and they throw a dead chicken with a head and the guts are all inside and they say, cut it up, cut it up into pieces. And I am there essentially massacring this dead chicken with the head and the eyes and the thing and saying, I don't know shit man. I don't know anything. I don't know what I have been doing all this time. And it's only because this culture hasn't absorbed that into their psyche. And it's nobody's fault per se. I mean, you can't just pinpoint and say, you suck, you suck, you suck. The Europeans have the government to protect the citizens from adding preservatives and the colors and this and that. They have standards that the people, the farmers have to, have to follow. The wine girls have to follow the standard or it's not called French food. Organic label means nothing there because Everything is organic there. Even though they have some organic labels, the people are educated enough to say, it's all organic. Of course it is because your standards are so high. Yep. So there's multifaceted reasons why Americans don't have that in this country. It starts with accountability, not with just the industry, but our government. And then eventually it should trickle down to the education process that we have here, educating the Americans and their palates. Every school should be educating children how to eat how to cook, how to absorb food, and the nutritious part about it. And heck yeah, you want fried chicken? Make it the best fried chicken. Make it proper, sustainable, whatever it is, but make it the best in the world. And it's something I constantly try to teach my kids, and I even struggle doing that. As a parent who's a chef who understands how the world works, I have difficulty teaching that to my American kids growing up in this country. Wow. Thank you for not filtering yourself. Thank you for not coming in here. And I have nothing to hide, nothing to sell. Yeah. This is genuinely who I am. I, I am struggling like a lot of Americans are struggling as well. I'm struggling when I walk into a supermarket to have the knowledge and find out what is right, what isn't. And even here at the Seafood Expo, you know, there was a lot of things that I learned immensely. One of the biggest problems is terms that are being just thrown out to the consumer and the consumer's just doesn't know who to believe and what is right. When someone says farm-raised versus wild-caught, why is there the word versus have to be in there? What is wrong with farm-raised? You know, and, and the consumer just doesn't know and doesn't know who to trust. So I think we, we have to, again, rethink the way we're educating the American palate and then, and then showcasing and showing them why it is and why it's so important to eat cleaner food. The word clean is what they understand. And if you could just show to them that clean fish will take tastes better and is better for you. I think it will just kind of start rolling from there. My kids love salmon. And the only reason they started loving it is because they love salmon sashimi, salmon sushi, but they hated the cooked salmon. And when I told them that that raw salmon is this cooked salmon, they were blown away by that fact. And now they start eating cooked salmon because of that. Are you able to de define clean fish for us? Yes. I think of it, I tell this to my kids all the time. I said, imagine yourself in the dirtiest pool water and swimming inside of there and how you feel when you come out of there versus the cleanest pool water when you swim in there and it's fresh and nice and clear and you come out of there. Think of where this living being is actually living and and sleeping and eating and breathing and, and apply that to fish itself. And that's where I think the word clean is going to apply very well to fish as well. Where that fish is happy living, and same thing with chicken, 
chicken and beef and all these things, the roaming, walking and happy and strutting and getting fat on the land, you're going to apply the same thing with fish as well, with seafood as well. And you're going to see that flavor is so different than the highly processed or the dirty waters, wherever other fish come from around this world. How do you look for clean fish in the grocery store if you're a consumer? With my eyes, unfortunately, and <laughs> okay, the only yeah. way to they do need it your is eyes. eyes. <laughs> it's my eyes and also with my nose. It's very important when I walk into a fishmonger. And one of the cuts of fish that I absolutely adore is skate. It's hard to find, and not a lot of Americans know it. It's essentially a stingray, practically. And it's, the texture is amazing, but it goes bad very quickly. So you have ammonia flavor if you don't cook it soon enough. So it has to be very fresh. And so when I do go in specialty fish shops or fishmonger or the farmer's market, and there is stingray, or, or in this case, skate, I always ask to smell it. I look at it. I always ask to smell it. And it's such a bizarre concept for Americans to think like, can I smell that fish before I buy it? Is that kosher? Absolutely. I'm not touching it. I'm not poking it. I'm not doing anything with it. I tell the guy, pick it up because I am paying for this. I have the right to know if that fish is fresh right off the bat. Also, look at the gills if it has a head. Look at the color. Look at the sheen. There are a lot of different components to looking at it. And quite often I go in there and I tell the monger, these fish look kind of sad, you know, and, and that's the word I like to use is sad. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, they call it whatever, the steelhead or whatever it is, and it's practically gray. And I'm seeing fellow consumers, customers walking in and buying that piece of fish, and I'm dying to grab them and say, no, no, look at it. Look at the color. Look at what, you're, look what, what this is. It's not going to taste good. But the education process, it's just going to take time for them to understand a good fish or a clean fish versus a not clean fish. Huge part of why we're doing this is just education education, awareness, raising the the appreciation for for seafood culture, for cuisine, the history, reminding people about the the beautiful history from wherever, whatever lineage you have. There's some seaside, there's some lake, there's some river stories, right? So I think it's just about reminding people about that. Clean fish, we're talking about that. What what regions do you like? Do you gravitate towards certain bodies of water that you you're like, yeah, that that one I I love. That's a, it's a good region. The Mediterranean, without a doubt, it has. The, I mean, of course, my parents were born and raised in Lebanon, and they brought their love of fish home when we when they moved to Venezuela. Obviously, the Caribbean has extraordinary fish as well. It's so weird when you travel around the world and there's an ocean side or a lakeside. The one thing that you don't see is this embrace of what's coming out of the ocean right off the coast of where they are here in the United States. We are a country that will search for pizza on the coast of Maine. I'm just like, no, 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 there's got to be fish here. And we just don't have that, again, ingrained in our culture. When I go to a big body of a lake here in the United States, all I can think is like, what's the trout like here? But you go there and suddenly there's you know, calamari, fried calamari. And I'm like, there's no calamari here, man. Like, why are you serving me this? I want what's coming out of this ocean. And what I hear most of the time is, oh yeah, we fish that. We just export it. We get it out of here. And you know, the people locally don't want it. So we have to change that. Eat where you are living. See what what is being best there. And that's what the Europeans have just destroyed us with is that they see that the grass is green and the pastures lush, well, they're going to throw some cows in there. And now those happy milk and cream giving cows are going to produce the best cheese from that land that it's offering. And the same thing goes with the ocean. Mediterranean, oh man, a good sardine in the Mediterranean, man. Nothing, nothing beats that. Yeah. Big thing that we wanted to chat about as well, when it comes to what we eat, and you're talking about this, Americans have a world of choice of food, or at least they think they do. And there's a lot of food available but why should they be choosing seafood? 
I've only met very few vegetarians in my life that tell me that they also don't eat fish. It says a lot. You know, are you vegetarian? I'm vegetarian. Oh, do you eat fish? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I certainly eat fish. Okay, you're pesca vegetarian. That's interesting. It says a lot that even vegetarians will make an exception for protein-like fish. And that, I think, says that the protein content in fish, the fat content in fish, the good fat content in fish, it is like the miracle protein that we're all missing out on. And the biggest reason I believe that Americans don't eat enough fish in this country is because, unfortunately, they do not know how to cook it. And it's overcooked at all times. And when you overcook something as delicate as fish, it's ruined. <laughs> it's really ruined. You're ruining pretty much the flavor of it. Fish should melt in your mouth. It's the reason why sushi is enormous in this country because you're eating it raw and it's going to melt in your mouth. Now imagine slightly cooking it. It's still going to taste as good, differently, but as good. So I tell people, don't be afraid to undercook fish and then taste it. And if it still needs a little more cooking, bring it back in there. The worst thing you could do is overcook fish. This is the question that I was most excited about to ask you because I just really value your worldly experiences, how you've experienced the world, the way you see things. I just, I really like your perspective. What have you been seeing other people, other kitchens doing with seafood that just simply Americans are missing out on? And I think the angle that we're both kind of in common with here is the romanticism around it. Like how can Americans fall in love with how they interact with seafood in the kitchen that we're seeing in other thriving countries and cultures that, that isn't happening here? I think finding a good fish purveyor and not just, you know, a, a real fish market or a fishmonger. I'm talking about your favorite supermarket that may carry the right quality fish is really important and sticking to that. There are large, you know, wholesale markets like Costco, BJ's, Sand Club, all these places that will give you affordability. But will they give you quality? That's up to you to go and check it out. And I think Americans aren't doing enough legwork. Living in New York City, there are only relatively few supermarkets or markets that I can go to. And But I know specifically that those markets specialize in giving me salmon, for example, like Lidl or Little, however you want to pronounce it here, Lidl, the, the German ones. I know that their salmon is exquisite at all times, all the time. Even Trader Joe's, I like their salmon, but I don't, I'm not crazy about their tilapia, for example. So if, if you look for the sources of that fish, I think there's a good chance that you're going to be able to bring that into your home and, and appreciate it because fishes can be really tricky and very intimidating to a lot of Americans. The other thing I think that we're missing out on is good shrimp in this country. And, and I'm only saying that because when I first arrived here, I was shocked to see that the head on the shrimp is gone. And that is where all the flavor is. And you're removing the head of the shrimp, you're removing the flavor of the shrimp. And I was like, that is, you're taking the best part of the shrimp away from me. That is where the best sauces come from. That is where the, all the flavor is. And what I'm seeing is brine shrimp, slow frozen, that tastes way too salty. And what people can't differentiate is the fishy taste versus the taste of the ocean when it comes to shrimp and a lot of other seafood. And what you want to look for is the taste of the ocean versus a fishy smell. And with shrimp, it's relatively particular. And what I tell people, and this is the biggest takeaway from this, is that buy frozen shrimp 
always and not thawed shrimp from your fishmonger or your fish market or supermarket at all times because they are thawing that frozen shrimp for you and leaving it there on the ice. And think about it. It's protein and it's already starting to degrade in quality and consistency. Instead, you buy it frozen and chances are that shrimp has already been pre-frozen from the boat the moment they catch it. And now it guarantees that when you're ready to use that shrimp, it's going to be the best quality, even better than the raw shrimp that is over there. I never would have known that. I had no no clue. Like it just, someone growing up here, it's just absolutely have no, I had no clue the correlation between the head on, the flavor. What are some characteristics or some differentiators between that ammonia or that fishy yeah. taste or smell, those senses? And what's the difference between that and something that's got that ocean flavor. How, how could you contrast that for someone listening? The one seafood that will give you that true ocean flavor is raw oysters, I think. <laughs> it just brings you, I mean, when I eat oysters, my eyes are always closed because it brings me back to the days of going to the beach in Venezuela growing up. It's the moment you set foot on the sands of any beach and you can taste, smell the ocean because it's being aerosolized, you know, the ocean right in front of you. That's what you want to smell when you taste fish or even when you walk into the supermarket and, and you have them smell it in front of you. Unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of having fishmongers or fish aisles in the supermarket open and having it smelled. So a lot of it will be vacuum sealed, which is perfectly fine. Actually, a lot of this vacuum sealing technology is extraordinary and thank God for it because this way you wouldn't be able to transport it in this massive country that we have. So it works. I think vacuum sealing and all these other technologies, adding whatever uh, nitrogen and all for potato chip bags, you know, it just naturally conserves the protein or the food or the chips, or whatever you want. So if you can't access that, then you have to go with your eyes. So I start, start with your smell, then go with your eyes when it comes to purchasing fish. You want bright, colors. You want to also feel the fish if you can in that package and make sure it's plump and it's, you know it doesn't kind of, it doesn't look sad. It doesn't feel sad on your hands. And, and those are kind of the little tips that I give a lot of people on how to shop. When it comes to seafood, however, uh, and I mean shrimp and lobster meat and all these things, frozen will, you'll most probably never go wrong with frozen. If you want calamari, frozen is, for me is the way to go. And not only kills any kind of bacteria that it may or may not have, chances are it doesn't, but also you can Keep it in your freezer until you absolutely need it. And chances are it was frozen in that in that boat when it first got caught. And you know, it's at its freshest. This is super insightful, even just for myself as a, as a consumer. The East Coast PEI specifically with Canadian PEI oysters. Oh my just goodness. Exactly it. I can understand now what you're saying. I was trying to visualize that they, they call it the meroir, like, you know, instead of the terroir. But the quintessential fresh ocean flavor is definitely encapsulated in your main oysters or, you know, within Massachusetts and oysters you can get around Maryland. Like it's, there's they all the unique meroir and unique regionality taste, but there's something special having that fresh, delicious oyster that's, that's really connects you to the ocean. I do want to make sure that we hit on why you're here. You've created some exclusive recipes for Moe. Could you just tell us a little bit about the partnership and why you felt it was a good fit? And then we can unpack the recipes. Yeah, honestly, when Moe first approached me and asked me to come up with some recipes and showcase them, what I loved about this partnership wasn't necessarily about like, hey, here's a chef, here's some recipes you can make, take some photos and be done with it. Their main goal was to educate the American consumer. And it's exactly the platform 
I wanted. A, I love fish and salmon and, and I love their sustainability efforts. Those are things that are super important, but most paramount was that they wanted to educate um, no matter what. And it wasn't just about like, hey, say moe 10 times before you cook this dish. That's what I loved about it. It was this genuine need to educate the consumer on the consumption, the cooking process, and how to absorb more of the seafood in their life. And again, it, it would come back to it. Our American culture doesn't have that, unfortunately, because it's just not who we are. We're a very young culture. And if they could use me as their mouth, their voice for that, I've come to the pinnacle of my career in terms of being able to showcase what I love most. I've worked with the most industrialized companies in this country and showcased and made recipes, but you should have seen me when the box of Moe salmon came to my door. It was beyond Christmas for me. It was opening this package with tons of fresh Atlantic salmon, and I've never been happier. And I was so close to calling and saying, you can pay me in salmon, as this is how happy I am. My wife rolled her eyes, of course, and she said, hell no. But I was so happy. It was like, a kid being paid in marshmallows. It was like that. I was like, this is it. This is all I want is to work with fresh seafood because I am so passionate about it. But more importantly, I'm really passionate in teaching and inspiring others to cook it. And that, that's why I think we're really excited. It's, it's such a good fit. Your energy is authentic and it's through your experience that has made you this passionate. And there's a clear goal. You're not just out here to throw your name around, to make as much money as possible, partnering with different brands. Like you care about a like, specific end goal here. You care about people eating well, eating great, Americans advancing their palate and understanding that it's a great way to do it is by eating seafood. And that's a huge reason why why we want people to be tuning into this. Is there a specific dish out of the five that you've created that like that was really sick or one or two dishes that you're like, yeah, I really like that one? The one dish that is making me a superstar here at the Seafood Expo, I mean, a superstar, people, strangers, everyone is stopping me about it. They want me to come to their home and cook for that. And it's a dish from Venezuela. It's, it's a sauce from Venezuela that is served usually at steakhouses or in the rotisserie restaurants. It has the worst name imaginable, the most, least appetizing name on earth, but the flavor is the complete polar opposite, and it's called guasacaca. And who on earth would ever think that a sauce so good would have a terrible name like guasacaca? So guasacaca is a very simple sauce that, again, is served in steakhouses most of the time and lends itself perfectly to fish, in this case, salmon. And it's very simple. It's essentially, in a food processor, you're going to add Vidalia onions, green peppers, parsley, cilantro, white distilled vinegar. You want the acidity in there. And then an avocado, a little bit of salt, olive oil. Just process it until it's smooth sauce. If you make this sauce, if you make my guasacaca especially, because sometimes people put garlic and tomatoes, but my, if you make my guasacaca and you bring it to a potluck dinner, a potluck barbecue particularly, you will be the king or the queen of that barbecue. You will be the most popular person. Do not bring hot dogs, do not bring hamburgers, do not even bring fish, bring my guasacaca sauce and you're gonna be a superhero. And today I was able to cook uh, their new lightly smoked salmon. I, I never thought that would be so much innovation with seafood. I mean, seafood is seafood. How much more innovation 
information could you have? I was coming to the Seafood Expo and I'm looking like, oh, what's new? What's different? And I'm like, it's seafood. How much more innovative could you be with seafood? Well, the guys at Moe at Duck Trap figured it out and they made this thing called lightly smoked. And it's essentially a combination of cold smoked salmon, like the salmon you put on cream cheese and bagels, and raw Atlantic filet salmon, which is that marbled, beautiful salmon filet. It's a combination of the both. So you have this kind of raw Atlantic salmon that has that seriously deep wood smoked flavor inside of it, pre-brined, pre-smoked, all fresh. And now you have this really kind of salty, smoky salmon that you're able to marry with something that's a little bit fresher, like my guasacaca sauce. Do a Google search for George Duran guasacaca. That recipe is huge and popular. And people have, I'm walking around. I am a guasacaca superstar at this place. Do just trust me, do a search. You mentioned overcooking earlier, overcooking fish. It's funny, right? We love our sushi. But then somehow along the way, you know, the overcooking process happens. Well, are there any other common mistakes that you, you, you find people are making when they're cooking seafood? And what are some easy ways to avoid those? One of the ones is that Americans, again, tend to overcook the seafoods. I've said that already, especially like something like shrimp. Please don't overcook the shrimp. I think the method that people are cooking it is all wrong. You don't need to fry fish. Let's talk just salmon and tilapia and all these classic cod and what Americans really love to eat. There's no need to saute it. There's no need to fry it even. You don't need to fry fish. Fish is already good enough. And yes, okay, good fish and chips is fantastic. Let the restaurants do that for you so you don't have to oil up your entire house and make it smelly. That's the one thing, one of the reasons my mother never fried fish in our home is because it smelled the whole house up. Every American, almost every American has this one tool that will lend itself to the best fish and they are underutilizing it and not knowing that they can cook with it and it's called an air fryer. An air fryer is essentially a small encapsulated convection oven that is on your tabletop and it's right there and it's beyond just for french fries and chicken nuggets. It is for cooking fish in a heartbeat. The first thing you have to do is put a little bit of aluminum foil on the bottom, a little nonstick spray if you have to, place that salmon right on top of it, and now air fry that salmon. In a matter of between six and 10 minutes, depending how thick your salmon is, how cold the salmon is when you pop it in there, in six to eight minutes, you have a salmon that has been crisped up on all sides, that has browned up, created that Maillard reaction, so you have a little bit of caramelization. You can put any sort of rub on it. You can marinate it beforehand, but the air fryer is an underutilized tool for seafood in this country, and we all have that tool on our house. Air frying or broiling, two big things that Americans are missing out on when it comes to cooking fish. Talk about a... a a cooking hack, right? What do you have? You don't have to buy anything else. What do you have in your kitchen and how can you, how can you fall in love with this? Right. Yep. Culturally, I can see that, that lining up that, that makes sense. That's a, that's a logical step. You're not making people have to purchase new equipment and, and you know, learn a new language. It's the language of the air, the fryer. air fryer is uh, ubiquitous. Yeah, and you don't even have to spray oil on the salmon, for example. The oil is already inside of it. You have all that marbling, beautiful marbling on an Atlantic filet salmon. There's no need to spray beforehand. Just pop it in there. I guarantee you it's the easiest and fastest way to cook salmon. That's awesome. You said you have a couple kids? I do. I have a six and 11 year old boys. This is something that I also want us to be hitting on as we go along with this podcast, but it's the concept of getting kids on board and, and feeling more confident in the kitchen with seafood. And there is a lot of parallels with a lot of the people we've spoken to and how they got into aquaculture or seafood is they had a watershed moment where they either grew up on the water 
some upon a body of water, and they were really connected to to seafood, and it really inspired them to be in the role within this industry that they're in now. So it's a formative time in your childhood to get those positive exposures to to seafood. What does that look like, like for you? How do, how does how do we get this younger under ten kids that are under ten on board with with cooking seafood? It's hell on earth. I have two boys. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, you know, it, it's hell to get my kids to eat anything new and different because that's how their palates are. And their palates are going to grow. But the one thing that I can tell you is that every kid is different. And I know that because I have two kids and I can tell how different they are palate-wise. My older kid will eat raw peppers every single day, all day long, no problem. But God forbid you cook that pepper and you put it in a dish or just cook it, he will not touch it. So right away I can read my child, that child, and I could say, hey, Bodhi likes the fresher, crisper things in his mouth, the fresh cucumber, but God forbid it's a pickle. And then I look at my other younger son, Quinn, and you can see that obviously he, he appreciates something like simpler seasonings, for example. And his favorite seasoning. What is it, Quinn? Salt. Okay, now we have a recipe here and a guidance for us. And, and that's the one thing you have to see is what do your kids like? What do they gravitate towards? If your kid likes fried food, by all means, fry that fish. It doesn't matter how unhealthy that fish may be when you fry it with a batter or whatever it is. By all means, fry it. Because even those little gestures of conforming the fish to their palate are going to start that reaction in their digestive system, in their mouth, with their saliva, and getting accustomed to it. So that slowly as they grow up and their palate expands, they'll say, man, that fried cod that I used to have, I get the same flavor here with this roasted cod that from this restaurant. It's exactly like that. And I don't feel heavier. It doesn't feel oily. And it kind of is like this vehicle to instigate the kids to eat fish. So if they like crunchy fried stuff, fried calamari all the way. If they like salt more than anything else, load that salt up and roast it with a little bit of butter in there too. Don't be afraid. My kid will eat it has salted butter on top of it. We shouldn't be afraid to look at what our kids prefer and adapt that preference to the fish that we're going to introduce to them for the first time. Yeah, and that, that actually really depicts, I came from a family that were white Anglo-Saxon, you know, and it was just like a lot of roast beefs, a lot of chicken, sometimes pork, but not a lot of fish. And so it took me a long time. I'm 31 now. It took me a long time, not until recently, to really develop a proper palate for seafood. And and not because it's not delicious, because I didn't have that exposure to it in positive ways when I was younger. So I think you explaining that, if I had those positive experiences and if I was tasting different types of white fish or fish that was cooked the same way I wanted my chicken nuggets or my french fries, maybe that would have, I would have been further along within this, this journey. So yeah. the problem is that the parents don't want it either. That's the, that's one of the biggest hurdles that we have in this country is that if the parents don't want it, why are they going to make the kids eat it? And often what parents do is they think that eating fish or a lot of the adult consumers is like, I'm eating fish only because it's healthy. No, you need to eat fish because it's delicious. The healthy, that's a little icing on, on top. Fish is delicious and can be delicious. You prepare it properly, season it properly. The kids will absolutely love it. Start mild and then grow from there. And don't forget the butter. I love it, George. Really, my final question is, we wanted just to, uh, you're here, you're here in Boston, you're here at the Seafood Expo. Have you been here before? Never. W what's it been like for you? What's the experience been like? First, I didn't know there was a Seafood Expo. I, I go to a lot of expos. In fact, I just came from Expo West. I go to IDBA, NRA, all these like trade shows for food. And 
It was heaven on earth-ish. I think one of the things that I've taken away is that there's really a big push for true sustainability when it comes to fish. And it's given me a glimmer of hope of where we're going in this country with seafood in the in the fish industry. Because I tend to be a pessimist here in this country with a lot with the food industry because I, I literally know how the sausage is made. But with something like fish, you can't cheat it. It's alive and it's coming from one source, maybe farmed or wild, and you cannot cheat that. You can't process it in a laboratory and stamp it and market it. Fish is fish at the end of the day, and what's given me a lot of hope at the Seafood Expo is that there are truly a lot of companies and buyers and industry innovators that are pushing that sustainability part about fish, and it gives me hope. I'm, I'm really excited about that because that's going to translate to delicious tasting fish inside of our cuisine, inside of our homes every day for all of us. Was there a certain connection point, a conversation, someone who is displaying something while you've been here that really stuck out to you? I had a few people come up to me who were very excited about my demo, the cooking demo that I did. And one of them particularly was interesting. He was He's a crawfish farmer down in Louisiana. And it's so funny, he's having the same problem as a lot of the fish farmers or a lot of the food purveyors here. And his problem is that people associate crawfish, for example, with just a crawfish boil and nothing more than that. And so he really wanted to keep picking my head on that because crawfish is delicious. A crawfish boil is wonderful, but not everybody's going to make a crawfish boil. You're just going to have a crawfish boil when you go down to Louisiana. Louisiana, New Orleans, and that's it. But crawfish is like the magic cousin of the shrimp. And crawfish has a head on it almost always. So there we go, back to the head of the shrimp. So those are very interesting conversations to have with these smaller artisan farmers with specific seafood ingredients. Again, it gave me hope that we are going to expand our palates here when it comes to seafood. In terms of tasting things, I was able to walk around a lot. And the best thing I probably ate, besides my guasacaca sauce, obviously, somebody was making truffled crab rangoon from scratch like literally truffled crab rangoon, and it was the best thing I ever ate, <laughs> for no doubt. I mean, We did sample that too. You did? Wasn't it fantastic? And he was proud about his little um, dough wrappers. He's like, we make these from scratch. The pinch. Like, yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, you had me at truffle, man. Like crab rangoon, truffle, I'm in. So I love the creativity that a lot of people have when it comes to seafood. There it is again. Like, can you get some American who doesn't like seafood to eat crab rangoon? Yeah, you fry it, put a truffle in it. They'll eat it. Not a problem, you know. But at least you're starting to eat the seafood and that'll get that palate rolling with the next time they have another type of seafood, hopefully. Amen, brother. George, thank you so much for talking with us today. If our listeners want to find out more about you and try out your recipes, where they where should they be going? Yeah, on all social media, you can find me at Chef George Duran or go to georgeduran.com. I'm always there and I'm always happy to interact with people. I, I met a TikToker that I was uh, I was following already. Not a very big TikToker, but he was all about sustainability and talking. And it was amazing that as I was scrolling yesterday through TikTok, he was here. And then I contacted him and I said, dude, come on down, let's talk. And we spent half an hour talking about his endeavors with seafood. So social media is truly a fantastic tool, not just to inspire people about anything, but also to meet interesting people because people are more approachable when you reach them, to them directly. So reach out to me, Chef George Duran on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. And I'm more than happy to converse like I'm conversing with you because, um, man, let's talk after this. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Like, I really, really, George, I, I really appreciate your passion. I, I'm also a passionate individual, kindred spirit for sure. And I, I really value your experience and that you, you want to make a difference in this world through great eating and 
and, and helping people fall in love with with seafood and thank you for your time you're a busy man you could say yes to a lot of things you said yes to this so thank you for your yes to this and just for your knowledge thank you to the listener thank you so much for listening and helping us decode seafood here today Decoding Seafood is brought to you by Moe, hosted by Keaton Robbins, produced by Tim and Tanya Fraser of Murdoch Entertainment, and recorded and edited by Jordan Moore of The Pod Cabin, executive producer, Rotter Creative Group, with special thanks to our community of contributors and those that follow us.